Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, this morning we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. First Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When my youngest daughter was four or five years old, we took her and my other kids to the Philadelphia Zoo. And if you've ever been there in the big cats section, they have a part that kind of looks like caves, but they have like enclosures where the animal lives like in a large cave, but there's a large thick window that separates you from the animal and so you can see them and be relatively close to them and be relatively safe. Well, my four or five-year-old daughter, Bethany, she uh, decided to climb up on the ledge that was in front of the window and stood in front of the window on the ledge with her back towards the window. And she was smiling and waving at me, trying to get my attention. And as I looked over at her, I saw behind her the mountain lion in the enclosure stood up and got into one of that familiar cat-like pose, that menacing pounce-on-you kind of pose, and I was about to say something to her, and the mountain lion leapt off the ledge in a second flat, was at the window with his claws bared and his teeth bared, slamming into the window in a vain attempt to devour my child. You can imagine what that does to the heart of a father. Almost had a heart attack. But I shouldn't have been concerned. I knew in my head, intellectually, that that window was plenty thick enough to keep that mountain lion from eating my daughter. It's moments like that that cause you to question how much you really do trust in the protections 
from danger that are around you. It reminded me of what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. He warned Christians, members of churches, Christians, this is what he warned them. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A part of us wants to understand, okay, if you're talking to unbelievers, they could be devoured. I mean, they're in real spiritual danger, but, he, but Peter's talking to believers in churches. Can a believer really wander into a spir- place of spiritual danger and being devoured by the evil one? Is that really possible? Well, we've seen a similar kind of concern on the heart of the Apostle Paul as we've been working our way through these first nine chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. He was very concerned about these professing believers who were members of the Corinthian church that were in, as we've seen in many different ways, a place of great spiritual danger. They had been wandering spiritually. They had lost their way, and they were in danger of being lost. Now you can sense almost Paul's theological struggle with this. Paul knew very well and taught very clearly elsewhere in his writings that the elect, the ones that were chosen by God before the foundation of the world by his grace alone, truly born-again people who had been transformed by the Holy Spirit, that the elect of God would be protected from the evil one, ultimately, would persevere in faith to the end, would never be lost. He clearly taught that elsewhere, and he clearly believed that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says to the Philippian Christians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This was taught even in the Old Testament. And you think of the imagery that is used in the book of Job, where it says that God put a hedge around Job, a limitation to the evil one, a limitation to Satan, to say you can cause Job to suffer greatly, but you may not have him. He protected him, ultimately, because Job belonged to the Lord. So we know that that is true, and Paul knew that was true, but on the other hand, Neither Paul, nor you, nor I, nor anyone on earth knows who the elect are. Who are those ones who have been chosen before the foundation of the world? Who are truly born again? Who will truly persevere till they receive the prize? And we all know, some of us, many people, who have once professed faith in Christ, claim to be walking in faith, in obedience to Jesus Christ, but eventually have turned their back on Christ, have rejected him, and walked away, never to return. We've all known people like that. And so we have that tension between what the scripture tells us is true and is foundational to our theology of salvation by grace alone, that salvation is the work of God alone, and he is faithful to complete his work, with our practical experience of knowing that in almost every church, there are at least a few people who are not going to persevere, who are going to fall away. 
And Paul is very concerned for these Christians in the church in Corinth because we've seen in these chapters we've been working our way through that this was a messed up church. They had all kinds of sin problems, that there were deep divisions among them, that they were buying into the wisdom of the world and allowing the ideas of their culture to infiltrate their their faith, their practice, their, their way of living. They were tolerating sexual sin in their midst. They were complaining about Paul and challenging his authority as God's apostle. These were professing Christians who, generally speaking, were wandering spiritually into a place of great danger because they had exhibited a pattern of lifestyle which denied what they professed to believe. We saw in the most recent section, beginning in chapter 8, that Paul addressed one of the things they were fighting about was whether a Christian could eat meat that had at one time in the past been offered as a sacrifice to a pagan idol. Could a Christian eat that meat or had it been corrupted and a, Christian, a true Christian should have nothing to do with it? A legitimate question. They were re- but they were fighting about it. And what really troubled Paul was, and he answered the question, no, the meat's fine, the meat... There's nothing good or bad about the meat. The meat is neutral. It's idolatry that's wrong. But in the midst of answering that, what he was really concerned about, as you remember our studies in chapter 8, was that these Christians weren't loving one another. They weren't handling this dispute like Christian brothers and sisters should handle it. And a matter of fact, some of these Christians were boldly, who knew that they had the right to eat the meat, were boldly eating it in front of Christians that just weren't sure and they were troubled in their conscience about whether it was right or not. And Paul came down very hard on those Christians for not loving the weaker brother and not showing sensitivity to where they were spiritually and their need to work this through in their conscience. But there's one statement that I wonder, maybe we didn't really touch on it when we were in chapter 8, but Paul alludes to something in chapter 8 that I know shot up a red flag when I was reading through it and studying the passage. And he doesn't really deal with it in chapter 8, but he says in in, uh, verse 10 of chapter 8, he says this, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? He's alluding to the fact that some of these Corinthian Christians, members of the Corinthian church, were actually taking part in the feasts that were going on in the pagan temples where the meat had been offered as a sacrifice. Now, maybe they hadn't offered the meat as a sacrifice to the pagan idol, but the feast that was in the pagan temple was a part of the whole worship experience. It was part of the fellowship of the pagans. And you had some of the Corinthian Christians that were participating in that. And Paul doesn't address it there, but he begins to address it here in chapter 10. Because what he sees is a group of professing Christians that were pushing the envelope of their Christian liberty. And they had, in his mind, I think, actually crossed the line by entering into fellowship with pagans in the midst of their feasting in the the pagan temple. That's why we didn't read it yet. We'll get to it next week. But the point of the whole chapter 10 is in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. They were playing with fire. They were putting themselves into close fellowship and association with idolatry. And they weren't taking nearly seriously enough the extreme danger of idolatry as a temptation even to those who profess faith in Christ. 
They were like toddlers playing too close to the campfire, and Paul feared for their spiritual lives. So as we dig into the text here in the first half of chapter 10, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Are you in a place of spiritual danger in your life? I assume if you're here this morning that the vast majority of you, to one degree or another, profess faith in Christ. But are you, as you look at your lifestyle, as you look at your heart, your attitudes, and your practices, are you in a place of spiritual danger? Or is it somebody maybe that's very close to you, that you love? This chapter is a dark chapter. It's a hard teaching. It's a severe warning to someone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but is not walking in his ways, is not taking up their cross and following him. Someone who is flirting with idolatry, flirting with the wisdom of the world, flirting with the lusts and passions of the world, and is in a place of spiritual danger. And it's interesting how Paul addresses it. Remember at the end of chapter 9, the very last verse we looked at last week, the last few verses, talks about Paul's using the metaphor, the analogy of the Christian life being like a race. And if you're going to run like a good athlete, you need to run to win the race. And to run to win the race means that you run the race, you live your Christian life with sacrifice and self-control and discipline so that you can win the prize. But even in the last verse, he, he talks about disqualification. He says he wants to be sure that he is not someday disqualified from finishing the race and winning the prize. The Apostle Paul said it. That he is constantly looking to his life to see if he is running the race the way it should be run. The way that a true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will run the race. Disqualification, being lost, having started the race, was the concern that he raises here, particularly for this Corinthian church that had wandered so far. And to address it, he chooses to go back to the Old Testament church, the nation of Israel. And in Israel's history, there was the most massive, largest disqualification that's ever probably taken place in the history of God's people from the beginning until now. It was during that wilderness wandering period when Moses, God's appointed covenant mediator, went to the people of God, led them out of slavery and death in Egypt, led them out of slavery, led them through the Red Sea into the wilderness to be free people serving their God, worshiping their God, on the way to the promised land, to achieving the prize. And he uses that period in the history of God's people, the Old Testament church, the people of Israel, to illustrate the danger that there can be as you serve the Lord between the point when you are redeemed and when you are glorified and receive the prize. There's great danger in the wilderness I'm sure you've heard it before, but a Harvard professor, a history professor at Harvard named George Santayana famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's a spiritual lesson that Paul's trying to get across here. Learn from history. You know how much of scripture is history? So much of, his, of scripture is history. 
because we not only learn from the, the, the clear statements, the clear teachings of principle that scripture gives us, that God gives us in his word, but we also learn from the history of God's people. And what's interesting is that Paul, before, as he talks about Israel's history, he begins by making the point very clear that God only has one people. That Israel is not some other religion, it's not some other people of God, it's not some other way to, to heaven. That Israel was the Old Testament church. And the church is the New Testament Israel. That God has only ever had one covenant people. He alludes to it in verse 1 when he speaks, you know, remember he's talking to the church in Corinth, which was vastly, predominantly Gentile from a pagan background. But he refers to the Israelites back in the wilderness in the book of Exodus as our fathers. He doesn't say my fathers, the Israelites. He doesn't say the fathers of the nation of Israel. He says our fathers, all of our fathers. There's a spiritual connection between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. We are one covenant people united not by genetics, but by the covenant of grace, the promise of God to send the one ultimate mediator, the one redeemer who would deliver us from the real slavery, the slavery to sin and death, and deliver us through the spiritual wilderness of this fallen world into an eternal kingdom where sin and death and all that is corrupt is put away. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you are Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So even though the outward forms of the Old Testament church, the way they worshipped, the way they lived, the outward forms changed dramatically because they were shadows that pointed forward to Christ and his atoning work at the cross. Once Christ came, once he died on the cross and gave the, the true and final, once for all, atonement for sin and was raised from the dead, a lot of those outward forms were done away with because they were shadows, they were types, they were representations of his finished work. So even though the outward forms have changed, the essence of the people of God has never changed. That we are a people saved by grace because of God's covenant promise by which he unites himself to a sinful people and he provides the means of salvation through the sacrifice of his own son. That's always been how God's people have been saved from beginning to end. Christ is the redeemer. So Paul, interestingly then, having said that they are our fathers, we are one family, one covenant family, he goes on to speak figuratively, and it's interesting how he does this. It's kind of unusual in a, in a, in a scriptural passage. He speaks figuratively of how Israel was set apart unto God and sustained and protected by God through the wilderness to how we are set apart unto God and provided for and sustained by God. And he uses the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, he says that in a, very, in, a, in a figurative sense, but in a real sense, the Old Testament church, Israel, was set apart unto God, marked as belonging to God, when they were baptized into Moses, as he puts it, the covenant mediator, the one who foreshadowed the ultimate mediator. They were baptized into Moses through the parting of the Red Sea and the cloud, which represented the presence of God in their midst that led them through the Red Sea, that having been delivered from their enemy, Egypt, and delivered from slavery, 
They were marked as God's people, just like we are marked by baptism, having been delivered from slavery to sin and death by our mediator, Christ. We were baptized into Christ, and we now belong to God. We are marked by baptism. That's our outward mark. The church of the New Testament is marked by baptism. And that's the analogy that Paul is making here. But then he talks about spiritual food and spiritual drink. Well, he's obviously alluding to the Lord's Supper. He says that Israel was sustained between the redemption and the promised land. They were sustained by spiritual food and spiritual drink, obviously referring to the miraculous manna that appeared six days a week to provide for their physical needs and the water that flowed from the rock that the Lord provided to sustain them. And Paul says that was a type, that was a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, how the Lord still today sustains his people through spiritual food and spiritual drink in the sense of the Lord's Supper. You see how he's impressing upon these Corinthian people is that God is still the same God. We are still his people. The outward forms may have changed, but we are still a people that are marked by baptism and sustained by the Lord's Supper. And he goes on to say that rock that provided for the people, that accompanied the people in a sense, and was there for them in the wilderness to provide that water of life, that rock, Paul says, was Christ. Now, yes, he's speaking figuratively. It's a type of Christ. But what he's saying is Christ was with the Old Testament church is just like he's with the New Testament church. The same faithful Christ that provided for them and sustained them is the same Christ who is faithful to us and is with us even till the end of the age. That rock, the Old Testament calls the rock God. God is the rock. Psalms say it all the time. God is our rock. God is our rock and our refuge. Paul is saying Christ is the rock. Christ is God. The same God who is with his Old Testament people is with his people now. And so Paul's point then is is that he says, but notice, all of the Israelites received all of these covenant blessings, but, he goes on to say, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a sobering thought. That the vast majority, and as a matter of fact, he's understating it by saying that most were strewn about. That's what the word means in the literal Hebrew. They were strewn about the wilderness, about the desert floor. There were corpses everywhere. Of the over a million people, we don't know for sure how many people left Egypt and went through the Red Sea, but of the over a million people that went through the Red Sea, only two of the adults entered into the Promised Land, Caleb and Joshua. The children that were born in the wilderness, they got to enter the promised land. But anyone who was an adult that went through the Red Sea was lost, came under judgment, was disqualified, to use the word that Paul uses. So what are we to learn? Well, Paul talks about we need to learn. Verse 6 says we need to learn from this. These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, then he goes on in verses 7 through 10 to give four examples of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, the reasons they came under God's judgment. 
And if you've been paying attention so far in 1 Corinthians, you'll know why he chose these four examples from Israel's history. Because the sins that the Israelites committed in the wilderness were very much like the sins that the Corinthians were committing right in that day. The things that he was seeing going on in the church in Corinth. First of all, he brings up in verse 7 the big party that took place at the foot of the, the golden calf that Aaron built at the foot of Mount Sinai. While God was up at the top of the mountain receiving the law of God, the people of God were worshiping a pagan god around a golden cow, a golden calf that Aaron had created for them. They rose up and they partied and they played around the calf. You see the clear connection Paul's wanting to, them to make in their minds. They were going to the pagan temples in Corinth. And maybe they weren't involved in the actual sacrifices, but when they participated in the feast, they were entering into that false fellowship of a false god, and they were putting themselves in great spiritual danger. He said, just like the Israelites in the wilderness. 3,000 people were executed by the priests on that day in, in Israel. And then God sent a plague among the people. The second example that Paul refers to is the sexual sin that took place. Remember Balaam, the prophet, who had the donkey that talked to him? Well, that Balaam, later we know, led the people of Israel astray from Yahweh, their true God, to Baal, the god of the Moabites. And as part of leading them astray to false worship, he also led them to, to commit sexual sin with the temple prostitutes of Baal. And the people of God, again, came under great judgment, as Paul refers to there. 23,000 died under God's judgment. Paul's third example deals with testing God, testing him. Where God's people say, prove yourself to us, and then, you know, so that we might believe. They tested God by complaining about his provisions of food and water in the wilderness. And so in verse 9, Paul alludes to how God sent judgment among his own people by having poisonous snakes in their midst. And again, it was a type that was meant to point us to Christ. Because remember how God instructed Moses to create a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and raise it up so that all, everyone who was, had been bitten by the poisonous snakes could look to the snake on the pole and be healed and be delivered. Jesus said, likewise, anyone who looks to me, I will be lifted up for the redemption of my people, and all who look to me will be saved. Paul alludes to that example to say, you're testing God. The way you're living, your attitude, you're testing God in Corinth. And then finally, he refers to another grumbling event that took place in Israel when God sent a destroyer, which means an angel of destruction, to bring great death. And Commentators aren't quite sure which incident in Israel's history this refers to, but uh, a lot of them think that it refers to when uh, Korah and Datham and Abiram challenged Moses' authority and basically said, we don't want to follow Moses and Aaron any longer, and basically therefore rejected God's authority because they were appointed by him. And then on that day, 14,700 Israelites died in the wilderness. And again, the lesson to the Corinthian Christians is you are challenging God's authority when you challenge what he has given me to teach you, to tell you. When you challenge the word that I give you, you're not challenging my word, you're challenging God's word. So verse 11, Paul says, these things were written down for our instruction. 
We are to learn from these judgments that took place among people who professed to belong to God. I'm sure you've seen the parody of motivational posters that you'll see in offices sometimes, the parody that's called demotivational posters. And one of them has a picture of a sinking ship, and the caption under the ship is, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Well, that is not the only purpose of the Israelites in the wilderness, but it was a very important purpose of what they went through. It's for people who say, I'm baptized, I receive the Lord's Supper, I'm a member of the Church of God, but yet I can flirt with idolatry. I can associate with paganism. I can involve myself in sexual immorality. I can live by the principles of the world. I can think like the world thinks. But I'm okay because I'm baptized and I receive the Lord's Supper. That's to be like the Israelites who died in the wilderness. It's interesting, Paul makes the point that the rock that accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness was Christ. He's making the point to these Corinthian Christians, the same Christ who has said to you, I will be with you always, I am in your midst, is the same Christ who was with the Old Testament church back in the book of Exodus. That's the rock. You know, the Old Testament says that God is the rock, like I said. God is the rock. Well, Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, and he was the rock that was with Israel, and he is the one who brought judgment against those who professed faith but did not live according to the faith. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in the wilderness as he is in Corinth as he is in State College today. Jesus Christ is the same. Jesus Christ hated idolatry in the wilderness. He hated idolatry in Corinth, and he hates idolatry in State College. Jesus Christ hated complaining and grumbling and rejecting the authority that he had placed over his people. He hated it in the wilderness, he hated it in Corinth, and he hates it today. Jesus Christ hates sexual immorality. He hated it in the wilderness, he hated it in Corinth, and he hates it today. He's the same. He's not nicer, he's not kinder, he's not gentler than he was in the Old Testament. He's the same. He hates sin. And he judges sin. Now you may say, well, why aren't we experiencing the same kind of judgments as in the church? Because the church is certainly guilty of a lot of the things that Paul is talking about here. Why aren't we seeing the same judgments? Well, we don't see the same kind of miraculous provisions for the church either. We don't see water flowing out of rocks. We don't see bread coming down from heaven every morning. We don't see a cloud coming and taking up residence in our midst when we worship. We're not seeing a lot of the supernatural outward manifestations of the presence and the truth and the grace and the judgment of God like the Old Testament people of God saw. We don't see the outward manifestations of his grace. We don't see the outward physical manifestations of his judgment either today. Things have changed in that regard. But he hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. Truth hasn't changed. Matter of fact, we're under greater judgment if we reject God, become guilty of idolatry, give ourselves over to the ways, the lusts, and the thinking of this world. We are under greater judgment because Christ has come. In verse 11, Paul says, we are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. 
We've received the fullness of the covenant promises in Christ. We've received the fullness of light of the word of God in the new covenant church. Therefore, as scripture tells us, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. We've received so much more light than the Israelites did. And so our accountability is far greater. And so here's the, 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 the hard message, the harsh message that Paul's getting across here in 1 Corinthians 10. He gives a warning to the wandering but professing believer. A warning to the wandering but professing believer. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, I want to be very clear here. It is the normal state of the professing Christian to have assurance of salvation. In your normal walk of faith as a disciple of Christ, you should be sure that you are saved. You should be, if somebody says, do you know if you're going to heaven? You should be able to say, yes, I am going to heaven. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised from the dead for my justification. And he will complete the work that he began in me. It is the normal state for a believer to have assurance of salvation. The last thing I want this message to do is to cause a real believer to doubt whether Christ has saved him or not. But Paul's not talking to the born-again believer who is just struggling with sin and maybe discouraged, maybe had a bad couple weeks. That's not the person that Paul is addressing this warning to. His focus is on the professing believer who is presuming upon grace. The one who has been baptized and made a member of the church and has been taking the Lord's Supper faithfully, but his life has become a pattern of idolatry and immorality and worldly thinking and worldly attitudes. That over a period of time, you've shown a track record of wandering into spiritual danger and taking up residence there and being at peace there. And Paul is saying to that Corinthian believer, just as he would say to anyone here this morning, that if your trust is in your baptism, your membership, and your taking of the Lord's Supper, your attendance at worship, or anything like that, that's not the essence of salvation. Those are the outward forms of the new covenant church. The reality is where your heart is. And Paul says, if you think you stand based on those external means, take heed Lest you fall, you're in great spiritual danger. The scriptures give a lot of warnings. There are a lot of New Testament passages that warn professing believers to not put their trust in external works or rituals or marks, but to be sure where their hope and their faith is. Hebrews is full of them. Let me just read one of the many passages in Hebrews that warns professing Christians where Paul says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Paul, like all the rest of the New Testament writers, they are not afraid to afflict the comfortable in the church to bring the word of God against those who are living in the name of Christian liberty, in the name of, of whatever, are living in the ways of the world and turning their back upon their Lord and Savior. Yes, if you are truly elect, you will always be brought back. You will always be brought 
into a repentance and obedience. But if your life is reflecting a track record of wandering and straying and flirting with the world and embracing the ways of the world and the thinking of the world, then Paul would say, take heed. Peter would say, the devil is out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be watchful. But Paul, like the other New Testament writers, also continually seeks to comfort the afflicted. That's what he does in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. To the true believer, the elect, the one who belongs to God from all eternity past to all eternity future, he says, you're facing trials and temptations. You're in the wilderness of this fallen world between the redemption at the cross and the glorification when Christ returns. But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Everything you're facing right now in your struggles against sin, in all of your failures, it's all common. Your brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are facing the same temptations. Maybe to varying degrees, maybe in different forms, but they're the same temptations. Every believer, all the way back to the beginning of the covenant of grace, back in the book of Genesis, every believer has faced the same temptations to sin. The forms, the outward forms will change, but the sin is common. And Paul says that to comfort you, to realize that you're not facing unique temptations. You're not being picked on by God as you have to face whatever it is you face in your struggle against sin. I remember when I was a young man, a new believer, and I'd get so overwhelmed in the battle against the temptation to sin. And I remember thinking, oh man, what's wrong with me? Why am I so tempted? Why is it hitting me so hard? Why, you know, I felt like I was unique somehow in the degree of temptation, the kinds of temptations I was facing. And what that did is I would use that for justification to fall. Well, I'm just, I, I, it's beyond me. I can't handle this. It's unique. God is picking on me for some reason. He's not protecting me. And Paul says, no, that's not true. It's common to all of us. As hard as it may be, it's common to all of us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say the most important thing next. God is faithful. He says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You know, a physical therapist in the process of physical therapy will push you to the limits of what you're capable of. He'll, he'll push that, that joint, that, that limb, whatever it is that you're rehabilitating, he'll push it to the point where you feel like you can't take it anymore. And then a good therapist knows where that is and will stop and say, that's what you're capable of. That's where you need to get to again and again and again so that you can get stronger. And that's what God does with us in our sinfulness. We don't stop sinning when we come into the church. We don't stop sinning as born-again believers. But he is patiently, slowly, he is faithful, he is working in us to drive the old man out, to drive the sin out of our attitudes, our thinking, our lives. And he will push us. He gives us the ability. He gives us the faith. He gives us everything we need to fight that sin. But he'll push us to our limits to where we are at this point in our spiritual journey, journey wherever we are, he'll push us to that limit, and, but he'll say no more. That's part of the protection. That's part of that hedge that he gave to Job. He knew what Job could handle, how much adversity, how much temptation, 
and he would push him to the edge, but he would not allow Satan to devour him. He goes on to say, with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can never say to God, I couldn't see a way out. I had to give in. There's always a way out. He always will provide. Call to him. He is there. He's that rock that was with Israel in the Old Testament. He's still the rock today that's with you. He is there. He hears you because he died for your sins. And he will answer. And just think for a moment as we close who that rock is. This rock, Jesus Christ, is the one who added to his divine nature a fully human nature. And he was tested and tried and tempted during his earthly ministry. But specifically, the greatest test he ever faced was in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane. But think about that, that, that testing in the wilderness. He had been fasting for 40 days. He was severely hungry, severely thirsty. He was in a barren, dry, ugly wilderness. And Satan, the prowling lion, came after him with all of his force, all of his tempting power. And he tempted Christ to grumble against God's provision and to distrust God's provision and to create for himself bread out of stones. He tempted Christ to test God by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple to prove himself, to cause God to prove himself so that he could trust him. Satan tempted Christ to turn back from his mission, to go the way of the world, to bow to him, and thereby avoid the cross. And Christ faced him down completely, absolutely, and never sinned even in thought, let alone deed. He faced the full fury of the power of Satan and remained perfectly obedient. This is the rock that's available to you as a believer. This is the power to overcome temptation. He faced temptation infinitely farther than you'll ever have to face it in this wilderness of this world. He conquered Satan and all temptation. He obeyed God perfectly, and then he went to the cross. And there he paid the full price that all of your failings, all of your sin, all of your idolatry, all of your sexual immorality, all of your worldliness, all of your grumbling, he died for all of it and paid for it in full so that you can be forgiven and restored to God and live for eternity that you might gain the prize. That's the rock that we worship. That's the rock that we serve. That's the rock that will bring you through every trial and test and bring you into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where everyone in the room is this morning. I pray and hope that all are truly in the invisible church as well as the visible church, that all are born again by grace, walking by faith in Christ, bearing their cross and following him, But Lord, there may be a few here who may think that they are Christians because they've gone through some of the outward forms, but yet in their heart, in their attitude, their way of life, are still caught up in the idolatry and paganism and lusts and grumblings and 
rebellion of this world. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here in that state, that they would understand the place of spiritual danger that they're in and that they would come to the rock. They would come to Christ, the one, the rock that was, that was uh, cleaved for us, the one that paid the price and provided forgiveness and reconciliation. And for those that are truly born again, that truly love the Lord Jesus Christ and are secure in him for all eternity, I pray that if they're going through a difficult time, if they're in a time of doubting, if they're in a time of struggle with sin, I pray that they would look to Christ, that they would get not only the example, but the inner strength that can only come from him to repent, to turn in faith and be restored and renewed. Thank you. For Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.